This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. This is William White on the ones and twos, recording on the 8th of December, 2020. Lately, I've been thinking about career paths, and I've learned more about in-house legal work specifically. That, of course, is legal work done in a company rather than at a firm. Let's say you have a passion for law, as we all do, but you also have a passion for video games or fashion. You could work as a lawyer for a video game or clothing company. Uh, To me personally, these are dream jobs, and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by my friend Mark Burden, who happens to have the dream job, in my opinion, working as senior legal counsel for Holt Renfrew. So, Mark, I wanted to start nice and simple. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. And that's a very flattering thing to hear, that somebody uh, thinks that I have their dream job. That's right. I'm gunning for it, also, you should know. But I wanted to sort of – today what I really wanted to do was um, uh, talk about your journey, uh, getting the job, and working in the job to learn as much as possible. For me, the first question that has to be asked is, uh, what was your time like in law school? And sort of as part of that, when did you start thinking about in-house work? Well, I went to law school from 94 to 97. So it was a a much different environment in terms of uh, Canadian law school education. I don't think it was nearly the financial commitment that it is now. So I was fortunate to be able to go into law school uh, not entirely sure that I was going to practice law, um, mm. but just to experience it and, and see what it brought. Um, now I think, uh, you know, when I talk to, to my friends whose children might be thinking about going into law, it seems to me that it's a much bigger um, financial commitment. And I caution those people to be very certain that you know, being involved in the legal industry or as a lawyer is something that they want to do. Um, I would be very hesitant if my son were to say, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not entirely sure. I just think it's a big commitment for that. Right. So then part of that is uh, not just the cost, but the associated job search and getting a job. While you were in law school, it sounds like a much nicer time. What was your job hunt like? How did that go? Um, I don't know that it was a much, I mean, articling was still a big uh Finding an articling position was still a big uh, pressure. Um, What we didn't have is the access to the firm that we have today in terms of the internet. So what we knew about law firms and and what they did was based on what we heard from senior uh, students in the school who had already either summered or or, uh, settled on an articling position after second year, or what we learned on the one or two visits per year that, uh, that the firms made to the school and they left brochures behind. So we certainly didn't have the access to information that uh, that students today have. Uh, as far as my path went, uh, between my first and second year, I was fortunate enough to get a job uh, in the Toronto Crown Attorney's Office. And uh, that was really interesting. And, and like I said before, I wasn't certain what I was going to do in law. So um, working in criminal law was something that was on my mind. It was an interesting summer, but it was also eye-opening in a way that showed me that that was something I didn't want to do. So it was valuable in in that regard. Um, I'm not uh, completely up to date on how the articling process goes now, but for us it was uh, applying during the summer after um, 
or during second year, I guess, and then uh, interviews in the summer. Ideally, you would come back to school with an articling job having matched. I did right. match in the matching process um, after some interviews, and so that was a bit stressful coming back to law school. Um, you know, especially you come back and your friends all have jobs. Uh, I had decided I wanted to article in Toronto at one of the big firms, partly because that's what everybody was doing. Also, uh, being a Toronto kid, it was, you know, what was available to me as well. Um, so in third year, I was very, very lucky. Uh, the dean of the law school at the time was uh, uh, Justice Gleese now of the Ontario Court of Appeal. She taught me uh, trusts, and we had a visiting um, lecturer from Faskins. And as it turned out, Faskins was looking to add an articling student to their cohort. And uh, they asked me if I'd be interested in interviewing. And, and fortunately for, for me, um, I did do the interviews, got through, and uh, ended up articling with Faskins, which was great. Would you find, uh, say that the earlier you mentioned about a, sort of a lack of information based on the time, right? You couldn't easily find out every firm that was out there and who was hiring. Um, would you say that lack of information also pushed you towards big shop legal work, big firm work? Um, well, I think they were the easiest to get information on, right? Boutique law firms weren't coming around to the schools to, um, to recruit as actively as the, the large law firms were. Uh, I'm sure if there was something that I had have been interested in that was mostly a boutique uh, shop experience, I could have done my due diligence to find it. Right. Whether or not looking back, I was that diligent a student, I don't know. I, um, you know, like a lot of my peers, I think at the time, uh, you see the names of the of the big uh, Bay Street firms coming through and, and hear about the experiences and the salaries and, and that sort of thing. And you think, well, why not that? Why not me? And so that's the, the path I took. And, you know, at the end of the day, it worked out for me. I had a great time at Fastings. Yeah. So could you speak more to that? You ended up uh, getting the big firm job. How long did you work there and what, how, how did you enjoy it? If... Uh, so I articled at Faskins and uh, through four rotations, you're testing my memory. I think I did <laughs> labor and employment, real estate, corporate commercial and uh, litigation. I, when I, when it came time to, to submit interest to be hired back, uh, I chose, um, I think corporate commercial as my first and real estate as my second. Uh, I've often thought that maybe I, I made a bit of a mistake in not giving litigation a bit more of a chance. And I think that was a, um, a failure on me to figure out or investigate more what litigation was about. Because, you know, as, a, as an articling student, you don't know a heck of a lot. And my litigation rotation ended up being a lot of um, case research, you know, spending a lot of time in the library writing memos, which right. I don't think is necessarily um, the bulk of a true litigation practice. But that's what I was introduced to. And so I, I sort of judged it based on those three months. Would you say your lack yeah. of experience in litigation somehow related to your eventual in-house work? Because I'm assuming that in-house lawyers, I am, again, assuming they probably don't do a lot of litigation work, generally speaking. I think some do. I have a friend who's a, a litigation counsel at one of the big banks. Now, he's at a point mm -hmm. where he's no longer 
going to court on behalf of the bank, but he's managing the litigation files with all of the firms that they use. Um, so he's still a litigation lawyer. He's just uh, not going to court himself or rarely going to court himself. Um, you know, my decision to get into uh, in-house counsel was more of a, a personal and lifestyle situation than uh, trying to get away from anything in particular or to anything in particular. Right. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of, of maybe having a bit more flexibility in, in my time um, when I made the decision, and it may have colored my, my viewpoint. My wife and I had just had our son, and so, you know, it was a, a double stressful year. I was early in my career as a, as a lawyer on Bay Street, and we were, you know, and I'm not saying like, this is something that nobody else had done before. Lots of people have done it before and since and done it differently than me. But I just sort of looked ahead and said, you know, maybe what I want to do in terms of my life, my experience is to, is to go in-house and, and have a, a more, and I, I hesitate to say a more predictable job, a more um, <laughs> yeah. scheduled job. It's not always that. But I think, uh, to be fair to, to people who work in private practice, I have a little bit more control over my life and my time than, than they might a lot of the time, especially early right. so, on in, in your career. So if someone is currently working in a normal law firm and they would say, oh, I don't want to do in-house because I do this one type of, of, of law, which you can't do in-house, you would say there probably isn't such a thing, right? I mean, you could you could do litigation, corporate finance. You could do anything for a, a business rather than a firm, technically. Well, it's possible. Whoever you're doing that work for inside the private practice law firm is a business, Right. So, right. you know, you just have to find the business that's big enough to have a need to employ whatever it is you're doing. Um, you know, if you're an M&A lawyer, mergers and acquisitions lawyer, there are lots of companies that are doing lots of mergers and acquisitions all the time. And they might need in-house counsel to, to help manage those. If you're a finance lawyer, banking lawyer, you know, uh, a private company might need or even a public company might need to be boring. Right. So they need somebody on their side to work with the uh, with the the external counsel to to get these deals done, right? And a, a lot of what you do as internal counsel uh, is almost like a translator. You're the the go between between the business on your side and the very technical lawyer on the law firm side. And you you know you're you're uh, the Google Translate to to tell each of those sides what the other one wants or is trying to do. Right. But you, you do do a substantial amount of things without having to contact firm lawyers, I'm assuming. Yeah, my practice is, um, is almost you know, sole practitioner for the departments that I uh, support at Holt Renfrew, which right. is um, IT and procurement, um, some operations, that sort of thing. And so, you know, the benefit I have over farming something out to external counsel is that I am intimately... Uh, aware of and knowledgeable about Holt Renfrew's business and interests and priorities. So there's no, uh, you know, and I, I can access quickly the people that have the answers if, if I don't have them. Right. So before we speak more about what you do at Holt Renfrew, uh, how did you get into Holt Renfrew? Was that, I, I know that wasn't your first in-house job, correct? No, it wasn't my first. So I was at Faskins for three and a bit years. And like I said, I made the decision to go, um, in, an in-house uh, position. I worked with a recruiter and eventually took a role at uh, Purelater Courier. Sorry, and you worked for a recruiter? 
I worked with a recruiter. So I reached oh, out to okay. a recruiter and said, you know, I'm available uh, if you have any jobs. This is the type of work I think I'd be interested in. And then they keep me in mind, basically. I become part of their inventory. And uh, they put me forward for a, a couple of jobs. And one of them was uh, was this in-house role at uh, Purelater Courier, which saw me doing a lot of, uh, you know, general corporate commercial work with a bit of a focus on marketing and advertising, um, you know, contests and that sort of thing, which I which I really, really enjoyed. I was at Purelater for about seven years. And then in an opposite fashion, a recruiter reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in... Uh, exploring an opportunity uh, as a sole general counsel for an armored car company. And so I, I took that job and did what that. What was that? That was a company called G4S. It's now Garda. They were a British company that had come into the marketplace um, a few years before I arrived at the, at the company. And uh, they ended up leaving the country not long after I left uh, the company. They sold their interests to Garda, and, and now you can see G4S only in uh, security guarding, not in armored car transportation. And so, so uh, to what extent, maybe with these first two jobs, did you actually have some sort of intricate passion with what they did? Or did, or did you have an interest in, in what they sold? Or um, I was definitely interested in them as businesses. You know, I don't know that anybody is particularly passionate about uh, package delivery or, um, you know, high value currency logistics until they get into it. And then you start to realize that there are a lot of interesting nuances and, and opportunities to do some cool stuff. Um, you know, when I was with Purelator doing the marketing and advertising, I did sponsorship deals with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment for Leafs games and Raptors games. I did a sponsorship deal for the Vancouver Olympics in 2010. When I was at G4S, I negotiated opposite most of the of the big financial institutions in in Canada, which gave me an opportunity to sit across the table from some you know, very impressive uh, clients of our company and also some very impressive counsel who were acting in the best interest of their clients. So you know, a good um, intellectual exercise, you know. In regards to the negotiations with the banks, you were negotiating negotiating financial deals and structures. Uh, transportation, so uh, basically oh, right. uh, carrying the money to and from the right. banks, and uh, the other big part of it was servicing bank machines. If you want, right. I was around, thinking of military trucks, but these are actually the the sort of the bank money trucks. What you would think of as a traditional—that's oh, a product are. I think would be interested to work with for sure. Yeah, that Very was exciting. Needed. As part of that job, I was I, I had to get my gun license. You know, I'm not a big <laughs> guns guy, but that was part of the training for the company because it was a unionized environment and they needed to be ready to continue the services if uh, if there happened to be a, a labor um, incident. And so, is the upshot then that you would maybe have to do it? I wouldn't have been on the trucks. I would have been in one of the depots where we had. You know, the banks don't hold lots of money. The no. armored car companies hold all the money. And they just take it out and bring it back uh, to to their own facilities. So we were supplying cash for all the bank machines, uh, for TD, for Royal Bank, for Scotia Bank. So if you can think about how much those bank machines distribute in a day, that all has to get replaced each night. And so the trucks are on the road overnight, filling up those bank machines. 
Right. So then the question becomes, I don't know if Holt was next, but it might have been. Is Perhaps uh, uh, the question is, how did you go from armored uh, uh, money tanks to, <laughs> to clothing? Well, I took a couple of years off of practicing law. I did a little bit of, uh, of recruiting myself in the, in the logistics and legal industries. So it was two industries I knew, right? Logistics from Purelator and, uh, and G4S and legal from being a lawyer or at that point, 10 or 12 years, whatever it was. Um, then I decided I wanted to get back into law. And so I just sort of been keeping my eye on the Ontario reports and, and other places that legal positions were um, being advertised. And I saw uh, a role for a contract, I guess a maternity leave replacement at Holt Renfrew. And it basically gave the job description of the things I really liked about Purelator and, uh, and G4S a little bit lesser extent, but the marketing and advertising, uh, trademarks management, that sort of thing. I was more senior than what they were looking for. Um, but when I did a little bit of digging around on the job, I was able to discover that the person who was going out on mat leave was also a former Faskins lawyer and had uh, interned at the company, which led me to believe, rightly, that uh, Faskins was the, the law firm that acted for Holtz. So I called up a good friend at Faskins to ask him what he knew about the relationship between Faskins and Holtz and if he could put me in contact with anybody that could uh, talk to me about the job. And he reached out to somebody he knew who in, inside the firm that actually worked with Holtz who gave him the uh, email address of the general counsel. I reached out to her directly. And within a day or two of that, she and I were um, exchanging messages via email. And uh, then I went through the normal interview process and eventually uh, landed the gig. So the takeaway for me here is just extreme high-level networking. Is that fair to say? I wouldn't say it was extreme high-level, but I mean, you know, like a lot of things in the world, it's uh, who you know and the effort you're willing to go is, right. is going to take you a long, a long, long way. I was fortunate that uh, I knew somebody who was able to, um, you know, it didn't change my experience or my ability to do the job, but it definitely was nice that he was able to say, I know this person, I've worked with this person. And so I went in on my first conversation with a little bit of credibility that uh, a pure cold call or, or, you know, resume submission might not have. Right. So then you wound up again, going from Purelator to the armored car company to Holt. So now you're working at not just a clothing company, but what I believe is a clothing outlet company that's an incredibly large brand, obviously a very profitable brand. Was there something about uh, clothes? I know you're interested in the marketing side and the trademark side. Is there something about any of their products or, or the way the business is structured that you particularly found interesting? Um, I think, you know, I, I was interested in the brand and the way that Holt Renfrew does its business, you know, the experience of going into a Holt Renfrew store, uh, the look and feel of, of that experience. I think that's where retail is going now. It's a lot more experiential. We're competing with online sales. That was something that, uh, you know, the last five or 10 years has been getting bigger and bigger. I wouldn't say that I was that big of a fashion guy, certainly not cutting edge, you know, on trend, changing my wardrobe out every season <laughs> sort of thing. Right. Um, I, I get it. I find it interesting, but I just don't have that, that kind of lifestyle. I never really got into it. Um, I do really like, um, you know, I can, I can get more excited about some of the accessories right. and that sort of thing, or, or, you know, it's Christmas time now. Um, 
for those that can go into stores, uh, because in Ontario we're, we're closed right now, but in BC and in Alberta and in Montreal, our gifts and gourmet selection is, uh, it's a seasonal thing where we bring in a lot of really cool gift ideas and, and I get a big kick out of that and usually, you know, do a, quite a bit of my Christmas shopping from, from that, uh, selection. Right. So to what extent then, I mean, I've been kind of getting towards this sort of more broad question. To what extent do you think it adds value or is helpful for an in-house attorney to either be specifically interested in either the business or the products they sell? Um, I think it's, you know, you want to have an interest in some part of the business whether it's an industry that you, you like and you're passionate about, like it sounds like you're uh, a, a big fan of, of current fashion, that would do it for you. Or maybe if it's a small business and you want to see something grow and nurture it and you want to get on the ba- ground floor and maybe see an opportunity go public, if that's what you're looking for in your job, I think that's important. There's got to be something that really drives you. Um, sometimes it's just the relationships with the people you work with. Uh, I'm fortunate that I work with a brand that I, I really enjoy and, and admire, even if I'm not its biggest uh, consumer. I'm also very fortunate that the team that I work with, both inside the legal department and uh, the company as a whole, is is really great. And I got to say that you know those people that are in Holt Renfrew on the buying side of things or the marketing side of things, those are some very very passionate fashion uh, fans. And it's a lot of fun to work with them and to see them bring their ideas uh, to life. And so I get a kick out of that. Um, I did once turn down an opportunity um, to pursue a job where I just didn't believe in in the product. It wasn't a right. bad product or what, so anything like that. It was just something I knew I would never choose to use. And so I just thought it's not fair to me or to them um, to go in and, and you know be their their legal shill, if you will. Um, my heart wouldn't be in it. And then that's not the kind of work I want to do. Right. So then I guess the question is, um, yeah, you've been there how many years, sorry, at, at Holt Renfrew now? Uh, four and a half. Four and a half. So the question is, I see that you're senior law, right? Yeah. In a normal uh, law firm or a regular law firm, I think the classic idea is that you're you're an associate. I guess you're a student maybe, and then you're yep. an associate, and then eventually you make partner. Hopefully it's equity partner. Yep. And so there's this sort of a very, um, not simplistic, but very uh, traditional way that you advance and the way you sort of culminate a career. In-house lawyers don't become partners to any extent, as far as I'm aware. Is there any equivalency to the partner track in the sort of legal work you or other in-house lawyers do? I think the track for uh, anybody working in a company is much more of the, you know, the traditional um, job titles that you hear about. So in our company, it's it's fairly flat. We've got coordinators, managers, uh, directors, divisional vice presidents, vice presidents, senior vice presidents, and then the president. And so in any role in the company, you can be at any one of those levels. Um, You know, the next in the legal department, there's only one top job. And in most legal departments, there's only one top job. It's the general counsel. I think if you got somewhere bigger uh, than a three-person department, which is what we have, you might see a general counsel and then associate general counsel or two associate general counsels. um, And then you know, senior legal counsel or whatever below that, and then just legal counsel. Um, you know, at, at Holt Renfrew, 
it, there's just not the number of levels for that sort of, um, right. you know, splitting of, of the roles. Uh, as far as what each of us do, um, the general counsel manages the department and has a lot of the responsibility for um, the corporate operations of the company. So minute books and finance, that sort of stuff. But as far as legal work goes day to day, there is no um, differentiation between the, the level or the caliber of work that any of us are doing. We're just doing different types of work for different departments throughout the, the company. And each of us can move over to the other's work pretty easily. We, you know, we keep abreast of, of what's going on in the broader company. And so if somebody's on vacation or gets bogged down, any one of us can step into the other's shoes and, and carry on pretty seamlessly. To what extent then can you, maybe even if you wanted to, get out of the legal uh, aspect of the business and join the business side of the business? For example, and this is a very general question, how possible is it for a lawyer who's working in-house to maybe branch out into the board of directors in a smaller company or something like that? Very, very possible. I mean, the, the one great thing about being in the legal department is that you touch every other aspect of the organization. So you certainly develop a lot of knowledge. Uh, a lot of people who uh, go to law school, become lawyers, come out of uh, business or economics or, or other areas that give them, whether it's you know computer, uh, IT, that sort of thing, give them skills that are valuable to the business in, in other ways than law. And I've had a number of friends who've moved out from uh, pure legal counsel roles to uh, to business roles. In fact, the, the job that I took at Purolator, I was replacing somebody who had moved from uh, from legal counsel to a strategic director, and he ended up eventually coming back, becoming general counsel of the company, and then out of general counsel, he went to become a VP in the marketing area. Mm. Same company. So he was in and out of the legal department on his ascent to the very top of the organization. Right, and so the, generally that's motivated in, in large part, I'm guessing, to a financial incentive? Um, well, I, I think it's, you know, for some it might be a financial incentive. For some it might be uh, a challenge. Others it might be, uh, you know, a change is as good as a rest. Everybody's got their own motivations. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, being a lawyer is a, is a, as I said, gives you a very broad uh, experience as your career goes. You see a lot of things. You become you know, a, a trusted advisor to the company, not only on pure legal issues, but, you know, you've seen this type of deal before. And so you can say, well, this is what we've done this way, or you could maybe negotiate this and, and horse trade that, that sort of thing. And uh, that's where the, the value is to the company of having in-house legal counsel, then going out to a different lawyer every time you do a new deal. Right. So as far as being a lawyer goes, one of my main questions that I always sort of wonder as a student is... <laughs> To some extent, what does a lawyer do all day? Now, when when working in a law firm, I understand that if you, let's say you're doing transactional work, right? If you're doing contracts, if you're doing any kind of deal, you're probably working a lot with standardized boilerplate language and documents that are inside of your firm already. They might be proprietary or something like that. In your job, when you're doing transactional work or you're drafting something, what sort of resources do you as an in-house uh, practitioner have, maybe opposed to a normal uh, legal firm worker? 
I think it's it's very similar. We've created a lot of our own templates for the things that we do on a regular basis, whether it's non-disclosure agreements or you know some of the fun stuff that we do, or photography agreements or model agreements. Um, you know, we've done uh, we we've had lots of celebrities come through Holt Renfrew, so I've seen a bunch of um, celebrity agreements with their riders and that sort of st- stuff come through. Sometimes riders story. The riders, the riders are what uh, celebrities or bands want uh, to have available to them when they come into the into the store. So you may have heard the story about Van Halen. Um, this wasn't my own personal, but Van Halen apparently <laughs> wanted a certain color of M&M taken out of yes. the M&Ms. And yes. it wasn't because they didn't want the M&Ms. It was because they wanted to make sure that the rider had been red. Right. So if they would go in and let's say the red M&Ms were in the bowl – what else did the company miss in terms of the things that were important to Van Halen? Um, right. So I've seen some of some of that. Um, I've done uh, agreements for movies that wanted to film in uh, in Holt Renfrew shops. We mm. have a, a standard form for that. Other times, you know, it's a completely novel agreement. You know, so we have to start at, at square one principles. And then other times, we're using, uh, let's say, the supplier's form of agreement because what do I know about you know, uh, a certain type of software that we're going to license. It's not for me, uh, it would be very arrogant for me to say, I can draft your agreement for you. Right. There I'm reviewing their agreement and, you know, looking at it to make sure it's reasonable and that the interests of, of Holt Renfrew are protected. And then in that case, if, if, let's say it seemed like they weren't, would it be your duty to negotiate a different contract or deal with that supplier or that IT, IP provider? Yeah, absolutely. So what I would do is if, uh, if, let's say the IT department came to me and said, we're looking to license this software, or have these services come in. I'd ask them to review the agreement and I'd review the agreement uh, simultaneously. And then I'd go to them and we'd have a discussion or I'd send them a markup of the document saying, well, here's where I've got some real concerns. I would suggest we change the language on this. This is a business thing that you might want to think about. It's not my place to say yes or no to the cost or the way that the pricing is set out or that sort of thing. But it's something you might want to, might want to, discuss with your counterpart on the other side of the deal. And then uh, after we have that conversation internally, I'll either put together a markup of the document that we'll send over to the other side, or we can get on the phone and, uh, and walk through the issues that we, uh, that we might not see eye to eye on and see what we can do to right. negotiate. And it could be, uh, you know, explaining why we can't agree to something or why we need something or them explaining to us why, the, you know, something that they've got in the agreement has to be there. Um, you know, I, I can give you an example of, of something that we negotiated all the time when I was back at G4S was how responsible was G4S for the money that was being transported if if the, the armored car guys got robbed? Right. You know, how much money would we repay? And, and there were a lot of conditions on that because, you know, people weren't paying. The service wouldn't be bought if it included insurance against all the possible risks. And that's the same as, as, as a lot of things. And so, you know, I'd have to explain to the, to the customer that says, look, we can do everything you want. The service is going to be prohibitively expensive, which would make you have to take it in-house. Uh, they would inevitably come around to say, yeah, I get what you're saying here. We can cap your liability at X. And we'll take the excess on that because we need the service more than we want to hire our own group of armored car guys to, to transport our money. Right. So then speaking of those kind of concerns, uh, in Holt Renfrew specifically, what sort of legal risk are you most sort of um, 
do you point your mind to most? What are you mostly worried about? I guess I'm asking. <laughs> That's a rich question to ask a lawyer. I think, worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> as a young lawyer too, I think, uh, I, you know, I saw risk in everything and that's one right. of the, to become a good business partner, uh, in an in-house position, I think you have to, to see risk, evaluate risk, explain risk, but also be ready to accept risk. Um, that's something that, uh, if you're working in a private firm, you would write a memo that, you know, five pages on why you've decided what you've decided and the things you've taken into account and the things you've ignored or whatever. And then at the end of the memo, it's going to say, but ultimately it's your decision. Um, In-house, you don't have that the luxury of that kind of time. People want a decision, yay or nay. Um, so you, you try and do it a, a lot quicker. And also knowing what the business is trying to achieve. You can't say no to everything. There's a reason that any business makes money. It's because it's decided to take risks, right? right. That somebody else has decided, you know, might not be worth it or that they've got the means to take. So, um, you know, day to day at Holt Renfrew, we have risks that come from operating the stores, whether that's uh, personal injury to the customers or fraud and theft by customers, employee risks. So we have to worry about health and safety in the stores. Um, we have marketing risks uh, for use of trademark slogans or protection of our own trademarks, our use of copyrighted materials such as photos or songs in the in the materials that we put out there. A big one right now is privacy uh, when right. we're dealing with employee personal information or customer per- personal information. Um, you know, we, like you and I just discussed, making sure that the deals we enter into are uh, – fair in the way that they apportion risk between the two parties, given the prices that are going to be paid and the services that are going to be uh, provided. We look at insurance and it goes on and on and on and on. Um, (laughs) You know, and and the issue is that your client is thinking that whatever it is they want to do is the best thing ever. And it must be done right away. And they're very excited about it because, you know, they're optimists at heart and they, they see the upside, right? And they want to sell it to everybody in the business and then the consumer, it's up to us as lawyers through a combination of advice and careful drafting and, you know, in the time that's available to explain the risks that we see and minimize those risks to the company through careful drafting and negotiation so that at the end of the day, when the client signs the deal or implements the marketing strategy or whatever, their eyes are wide open uh, right. to what they're getting themselves into as they go ahead with their initiative. So then as a Canadian lawyer, I mean, let's uh, take info privacy that you were just speaking about as an example. Info privacy is extremely different from Ontario Ontario to Quebec. It's fairly different from uh, Ontario to British Columbia to Alberta. There must be a lot of, uh, if you're working for all of Canada at the same time, there must be a lot of provincial considerations depending on where the stores are located. Absolutely. Um, you know, I can't speak as much to privacy. We've got an awesome uh, chief privacy officer who lives and sleeps and breathes the stuff, um, which I'm ever thankful for. Um, I know enough to know, you know, and sometimes this is key. I know enough to know what I know and to know what I don't know. Right. So I can run things up the flagpole with her and, and get her involved to, to review language and that sort of thing. But when you talk about the different uh, provincial uh, regulations and orders where I've been seeing it a lot lately is with COVID because every province and sometimes even cities is addressing 
the COVID-19 situation in a different way. And we've got to stay on top of the, the ways that it's being addressed in each of the, the provinces or cities that we operate our stores in. So absolutely, we, we have to keep abreast. And, you know, some of it, uh, you know, with the, with the COVID, I hear a lot of it through the news. And then I spend right, time yeah. following up to try and try and get the actual law or regulation or order behind what I heard on the news in time that I can share it with my you know, clients so they can implement the measures that uh, we're required to implement, whether it's signage or restriction on number of customers allowed in the store or what type of mask we're using or, or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, that's a lot of what we do is, is a compliance role, health and safety for the employees in the store, same thing. Um, and a lot of that sort of administratively, we've got specialists inside the company who will then come to us for assistance in interpreting the laws or that thing. But operationally, um, they look after it on a day-to-day basis. So then speaking of COVID, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, as my last question, something I've been wondering constantly and I've been wanting to ask every lawyer I possibly could know, um, to what extent are you working from home now? And to what extent do you think you will be working at home in the future? I am 100% working from home. I have been doing that since March. Uh, It's strange because uh, Holt Renfrew prior to COVID was not much of a a work from home culture. Um, We have a big office in in downtown Toronto. Uh, It's a fairly open space that, you know, it's pluses and minuses, but definitely collaborative. I really appreciated the ability to walk around the office and see my clients uh, both formally and informally. Um, and so the beginning of COVID was really, really tough for me in managing my practice. We've all gotten better at it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would be very surprised if businesses going forward were to keep the office layouts that they have. I think that uh, particularly in, in big city centers like Toronto, square footage for office space, it's just too expensive to not have people in all the time. And I think people are going to want to work from home sometimes myself. I could see myself, you know, wanting to be in the office at least twice a week in an ideal world. Um, You know, I don't know that I'm, I'm ready to to give up that experience, but I, I speak to some people who say, if I never have to go back in the office again, that's perfect. I can do it. And there must be some difference then between uh, in-house and and real firm work in the sense that firms, I mean, they're just renting an an office to do something that arguably they could mostly do at home. Whereas I would guess that uh, certainly in your case, a lot of in-house legal workers are working at a business where they do lots of other things at that headquarters. I would assume based on what you've said and what I've learned from other people that maybe in-house legal work would seem to uh, uh, oscillate a little bit more to the staying with brick and mortar, at least for the short term. Um, I think we can do both. Uh, you know, for Holt Renfrew in particular, um, we've got offices for logistics and HR and finance and marketing in each of the stores that do things for that specific store. And then at our head office is where we've got our IT department, our marketing department, our buying department, and everything else. And a lot of that probably can be done remotely. So, you know, clearly I've been doing 100% of my job remotely for, you know, however many months it's been, eight months. It's doable. It's not my preference. And I don't think it's um, as effective for me as I I would like, uh, you know, if I'm in the office getting um, 
you know, it's, it's the, it's the touch points with your clients or, or people who are not your clients, but are working on things that you might be tangentially touching and you get a, a little piece of information that you might not have gotten otherwise to find out something that's going on in the business that maybe you should be involved in. That's the part that I'm missing out on. Now. Right, right, right. You might pick up on things essentially. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mark. This has been an excellent conversation for me and I'm sure for all of our listeners. Is there anything else, maybe a tidbit of advice or some idea you'd like to leave off with? Um, I think uh, for law students at the beginnings of their of their careers, um, whether it's while you're still in law school or early in your career, I think it's very important and you get a lot of value out of asking questions and, and pursuing the things that you want to do. Um, you know, there's no such thing as the uh, uh, as a standard law job, and if there's something you're interested in, um, you know you should do what you can and ask the questions and speak to people and see if you can make it happen. Uh, I know of lawyers who've become experts in things that they've gotten into early on or that they had an interest in uh, before they became lawyers, whether it's video games or brewing, uh, all kinds of stuff like that, and. and those are the people that, you know, they sort of chased it themselves and, and made their own job, made their own career. Right. Beautiful. All right, Mark. Thank you very much for your time. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.